is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show about this great country. And all week long, we're telling the, well, the greatest story ever told, and that is the founding of our country and the signing of the most important document relating and regarding self-governance in the history of mankind, the Constitution. And as always, this entire week is brought to us by the Stetson Family Office, who dedicate a large part of their family resources to educating this country on the importance of the Constitution and driving constitutional literacy. And you can learn more at www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. And right now, we want to take you back in time to right after 9-11 into a little town called Philadelphia and a historian named David McCullough. Here he is talking about the lessons of history. And one of the lessons of history is that nothing happened in the past. No one lived in the past. They lived in the present. It was their present, not ours. Very, very important because they don't know how things are going to come out any more than we know how things are going to come out. Washington, Franklin, James Madison, Hamilton, they didn't walk around and say, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? Aren't we peculiar? Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? <laughs> they are living in the moment, just exactly the way we are. And they are imperfect human beings. That's redundant. We human beings are imperfect. And history is human. It's about people. We, the people the Constitution begins. Here's McCullough talking about adversity and the remarkable nature of the effort that made and created the Constitution and our country. Some people have the capacity to see adversity as opportunity. Adversity is often extremely difficult and sometimes tragic and sometimes um, Heartbreaking. But adversity can also be an opportunity to change things, to improve, to pioneer, to build. And then there's the very real and very pertinent lesson of history concerning this subject of this morning. And that is that America is a combined effort. Very little of consequence is ever accomplished alone. Very little of, con of consequence is ever accomplished alone. One person may get a lot of credit or all the credit, but never is it just one person. And this combined effort, many heads and many hands, as James Madison said, is the is the is the, is the reason why the Constitution happened and the reason why our country happened. The Revolutionary War was a combined effort. All that preceded the Revolutionary War, and the Revolutionary War, please understand, did not begin with the Declaration of Independence. It began long before that. And these steps along the way, which seem like the, uh, the gateways to so much, were not necessarily seen as such at that time. And then there's the very real and very pertinent 
lesson of history concerning this subject of this morning. And that is that America is a combined effort. Very little of consequence is ever accomplished alone. Very little of, con of consequence is ever accomplished alone. One person may get a lot of credit or all the credit, but never is it just one person. And this combined effort, many heads and many hands, as James Madison said, is the, is the, is the, is the reason why the Constitution happened and the reason why our country happened. The Revolutionary War was a combined effort. All that preceded the Revolutionary War, and the Revolutionary War, please understand, did not begin with the Declaration of Independence. It began long before that. And these steps along the way, which seem like the, uh, the gateways to so much, were not necessarily seen as such at that time. And the cast of characters assembled in Philadelphia in 1787 were remarkable. Here's McCullough. Five of them uh, are worth noting. Many of them are worth noting. But James Madison, who probably worked harder, very quiet, small man, poor health, very intelligent, and very dedicated. Uh, Alexander Hamilton from New York, who was a uh, spectacular talker, a, a stimulating uh, prodigy of a mind, uh, charming, uh, charismatic. Uh, ben Franklin, the wise old man of the, of the, of the scene, of the play, if you will, uh, who doesn't, doesn't say an awful lot during this session, but whose presence, like Washington's, is immensely important. Governor Morris, who was tall, handsome, talked more than anybody uh, from Pennsylvania, another very important figure. They're meeting in Philadelphia in secret, in, in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed. Many of you, I hope, have been there. You've seen it. It's not a very large room. It's not a vast, impressive gathering place. And, and its importance to our story as a country, to who we are and what we stand for, could not be greater. Imagine these two immensely important documents, both of which are, of course, here, where we are now, were created there. And you're listening to one of America's great historians, one of America's great storytellers, telling the greatest story ever told, at least as it relates to governance and self-governance, the story of the American Constitution, the story of America, here on Our American Stories, and, as always, the Constitution Week is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. Go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. Constitutional literacy, folks. Play these podcasts. Listen again and again each year. Celebrate our nation's birth with your family, with friends. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the storytelling of our great founders from David McCullough, who was in Philadelphia just days after 9-11, a pretty big historical day and memory for all of us who were alive then. And here is McCullough talking about the Constitution and language and words. There are 4,543 words in the Constitution. It's one of the world's shortest. Words matter to McCullough. One of the historians has said that the Constitution was the crowning work of the American Revolution. It was indeed, but keep in mind, it's not a crown of gold and jewels. It's a crown of words on paper. Words matter. What we say, what we profess to believe as expressed in words matter not just at the moment, but possibly for a very long time to come. The pen is, is a sword. The pen can be a weapon, but the pen can also be a magic wand. And when you think of what these relatively few people did in very little time, three months, meeting in that room with the windows closed, because they don't want word to get out, sentries at the windows to keep people from coming up and listening. In that heat of Philadelphia and humidity in the summer, this is punishment. But they're working in secret not to keep anybody from knowing, but to keep the politicians and the ambitious statesmen, if you will, if you prefer, who are in that room from grandstanding, from saying things for effect, for saying things for popularity or to make an impression back home. Not their business. Their business is to hammer out a document that will stand the test of time. And that was asking a great deal of those people. Three months away from home, three months away from their work, three months uh, a very hard, concentrated effort under difficult circumstances, calling upon their patriotism, not the flag-waving patriotism, chest-beating kind, but the kind of getting down to do serious, difficult work in a very serious, worrisome time. Not unlike the time we are involved with ourselves today. There's a lot of similarity. But those people saw this as our chance to do it right we're going to do it. Let's do it right. So what did the founders really accomplish, and why does it matter to all of us now? What they worked out, as I hope all of you know, is the basic structure of our government. And that's easy to say, and it's easy to say, oh, yeah, yes, I know that. The bicameral legislature, the chief executive, and the judiciary. What they were really working out is a national government a national government with power, which is the very issue that troubles so many people today. So is all of this relevant to the world we live in? It certainly is every day. Should you understand it? Should you think about it? Absolutely. All the time. We can never know enough about the Founding Fathers as they've come to be known. Never know enough. 
and we're learning more all the time. It isn't an old story that's been just talked to death. And it is, again, infinitely compelling because of its human frailties and human, human soaring. Here's McCullough talking about mistakes people make when looking back in time. He spoke here about the Articles of Confederation. One of the mistakes people make very often is that they read about a success, an accomplishment that improves an old problem, that dispenses with what was inadequate before. And they think it was a perfect job, therefore, and that what was there before was inadequate and a failure. Now, there is a great deal of to be said for that point of view, but it's almost always not quite complete. The Articles of Confederation were weak. They didn't have an executive to run the country. Taxing power wasn't there. Power to, to control uh, uh, diplomatic negotiations for the whole country wasn't there, on and on. But the Articles of Confederation, as weak as it was, got us through eight and a half years of the Revolutionary War, longest war in our history, except for Vietnam, the most bloody war in our history on a per capita basis, except for the Civil War. People forget that. And just because they wore funny clothes and walked around with wigs on and so forth doesn't mean that they weren't human beings suffering all the horrors of war. It isn't just the number of people who are killed, it's all the people who have been wounded and stricken with disease and taken away from their families for years at a time on terrible food and no pay. All somehow or other the Articles of Confederation and that government that was in Philadelphia managed to do it. And by the way, remember we told a remarkable story about Benjamin Franklin and his son and the war inside Franklin's home. Ben Franklin sided with the Patriots. The son, the governor of New Jersey, sided with the Crown he was in solitary confinement for two years, and when the war ended, he felt no home here in the United States was possible and exiled to London. And so the war had great consequences, and a lot of the founders, they fought in this war, and they suffered the casualties and all the horrors of war. McCullough continues the story of this country and the Articles of Confederation and things that happened while we were governed under that document. Ironically, the same summer, this tumultuous, troubled summer of 1787, under the Articles of Confederation was passed the Northwest Ordinance. Think about this. This is what I say when we got to think. The Northwest Ordinance created a new part of the country for the future's development. Five states would result from it. Ohio. Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. A territory bigger than the entire nation of France. Center of the Great Lakes. One of the most valuable, most American places on the map. And they specified there would be no slavery. Before we even had a constitution, no slavery in those states. 
and that there would be public education, neither of which would wind up in the Constitution. So they were ahead of the Constitution in that respect. So to just dismiss the Articles of Confederation as having been uh, largely a, a failure is to not understand what really happened. The fact that there was no slavery in those states would change our whole history. And of course, it was admirable in the extreme. The fact that they saw that education was essential to our whole system, to its success, and did something about it, didn't just talk about it. Jefferson said, any nation expects to be ignorant and free, expects what never, never was and never will be. But there's nothing in the Constitution about that. And indeed, I attended uh, law school at the University of Virginia, and this was Thomas Jefferson's public school, public college, to the state. So no one understood the commitment to education more and the importance of an educated civil society. How can we vote if we don't know what we're voting about or arguing about? And when we come back, we continue with this storytelling from David McCullough. And folks, it doesn't get better than this, and that's what we do here on this show, bring you the best minds the very best minds, but also folks who know how to turn all of these facts, all of these dates into real life, living, breathing history. And that's the problem with the way so much history is taught in this country. It's facts, it's data, it's chronology. And the human beings, flaws and all, are stripped out of the equation. We're putting those human beings right back in the center. David McCullough, master storyteller. The story of America, the story of our Constitution, brought to us by the folks at the Stetson Family Office celebrating Constitution Week here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our free free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, more with David McCullough here on our American Stories. And we continue our celebration of Constitution Week, and there's no better way to do it than to do it with America's premier historian, master storyteller, author of 1776, and John Adams, and that's David McCullough. And we continue with this conversation that he had back in 2001, right after 9-11, in Philadelphia. It wasn't a perfect document, the Constitution. It turns out it avoided a big issue, a really big one one that is known as America's original sin, slavery. The Constitution isn't a success entirely. Um, Martin Luther King put it very well in his famous speech here on the Mall, that it was a promissory note because it ducked, it avoided the issue of slavery, the issue with the ultimate lead 
into the worst calamity in the history of our country, the Civil War. 600,000 people died because of slavery in that war. 600,000 people. And that's not counting all the people that went home with one arm or no legs. We are accountable for what we do. History shows that. And we are capable of rising up out of terrible, troubled times and doing something, something thrilling that is a symbol of affirmation. And the Constitution is that. Even before the amendments were added, the Bill of Rights, even before the 14th Amendment was finally added, ending slavery. We keep fixing it. Now, whether the Constitution should be taken literally or should be judged by the temper and the moment and the problems of the moment by the, by the jurists is continuing issue. The great effort was to find a middle way. That's what they were struggling for in that hot room with the windows closed, to find the middle way together. And they succeeded in doing it. And they, it might not have gone that way. That's the other thing. It didn't have to, history is never on a track. We're often taught this follow, this follow, that follow, that. Got to memorize it, it'll be on the test on Wednesday, and therefore it had to come out that way. It never had to come out any one way or another. And what they achieved at Philadelphia was like nothing else that had ever been achieved. Words on paper, a constitution on paper, a written constitution. Still the law of the land, still part of who we are and what we believe. And indeed it is, and it is the oldest constitution in the world, something every student, every parent in this country should know. He implores here, David McCullough does, folks to go to Philly and think about those men in their times. These were serious guys doing serious, important things. I think that everybody should go to Philadelphia at some point in the course of life and go into that room and think about what was done there. Think about those human beings and their frailties. Some of them got in a lot of trouble later on, personally or professionally. Some of them peaked, as we would say then. But while they were there, they were using the best ability they had. They were thinking they were trying to put what they felt and believed on paper in words. This wasn't a sound bite opportunity to be practiced by sound bite brains. These were serious people. Now, most of them, over half of them, were under 40 years old. Don't think of them as wise old founding fathers. Some of them were, like Franklin. Most of them were quite young. But They'd had the experience of the war, which did not make them 
anything but versed, steeped in the realities of tragedy and accomplishment and courage and faith. Tragedy, accomplishment, courage, and faith. And it was, well, it was all over that room. Here is David McCullough's final point about these men, not just who they were, not just what they wrote, because they wrote the Federalist Papers, folks, and as important a series of letters, essays, that have ever been written in American history. But most important, what they were reading throughout their lives. Those people are all teaching us something. And they're asking us to get to know them better. And to get to know what they went through to achieve what they did in difficult times. Now, it's very important that we know what they wrote. But I want to I stress one more thing. It's very important that we know also what they read. Because we are what we read. What were Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, John Adams, Jefferson, what were they reading when they were students? What were they reading through life? From which writers, which words were they taking inspiration? One of them we know was Alexander Pope, the great English poet, and his elegy, his, uh, elegy a man. Act well your part, there all the honor lies. They all knew it. They all quoted it. What's that mean? Act well your part. History, luck, fate, God, choose how you wish to say it, has cast you in a role. Play it the best you can. Why? For money? No. For power? No. Celebrity? No. Honor. We don't hear much about honor these days. Act well your part, there all the honor lies. Now that doesn't mean they always were able to do that, but they were striving for that objective. And if you understand that, you can understand who they were and why they were the way they were a great deal more, more succinctly. Act well your part, there all the honor lies. Words these guys live by, folks. And words mattered, as David McCullough pointed out, 4,543 words that changed the world, an exercise in self-governance nobody, nobody could have thought would last as long as it lasted. And we are what we read. What a thing to say and what a thing to remember. And so this week, we're making it easy for you. You don't have to read this stuff. You can listen. You can listen to our great writers, our great thinkers, all week long, Dr. Larry Arn, you're going to hear Justice Scalia, David McCullough, Jeffrey Rosen, Chuck Stetson. All of this is available on our website, all of it via podcast and all the time and for free. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. All this week, celebrating the Constitution. And as always, all of this is brought to us by the Stetson Family Office, and the Stetson family office is dedicated to constitutional literacy and bringing the Constitution to life in schools, home schools, charter schools, anywhere people gather and want to learn 
Go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. This is Our American Story, the story of the Constitution, the story of America and its founding here on Our American Stories. we continue here with Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, our American Dreamers series, which is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, and they're working hard in Washington, D.C. and state capitals across this country trying to work for policies that help small business owners become bigger business owners and get their part of the American dream. And now we bring you a powerful immigrant story. My name is Gladys Gonzalez, and I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. My life hasn't been easy, and maybe because of that, I learned many lessons. I have learned that life can change from night to day, for better or for worse, like it happened to me when I was working in Colombia, and I was so happy there. I had a VP position for a bank with headquarters in New York at the time of the drug dealers' war. In 91, the first drug dealer had to come to the States in extradition. Our view is the right approach is to bring to justice narcotics traffickers to uh, coordinate and cooperate as best as we can with Colombia. The drug dealers said for every drug dealer that you send to the United States, we are going to kill seven Americans or people that work for Americans. And at that point, the bank decided to close business in Colombia. I had been working for them already nine years. It was a night life. My salary was in dollars, so I had a very good life. I had time to share with my family. It was beautiful. But unfortunately, I had to leave the country. So I decided to move to Utah. I really had a hard life in the United States at the beginning. I had this hope that because I was a executive in an American bank in Colombia, I will be able to get a good job soon here. But it didn't happen. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have a title from the United States, only from Colombia. So I ended up 
cleaning floors. And for that, I was very qualified. <laughs> I started from the very bottom of the ladder. I had three jobs at the same time. One of my jobs was taking care of people with disabilities. When I was finished with that job, I would go to my second job, that was to clean offices. Then I would go home to sleep for a couple of hours and get up the next day to start my routine again. On Saturdays, I had my third job, delivering bundles of newspapers to kids, carriers, so they could drop the newspapers in the neighborhoods. I learned firsthand how hard the life of an immigrant could be. Many times I remember my kids telling me, Mom, what would have been worse for us to stay in our country facing the drug dealers and guerrilla war or moving to USA to face this tough life? And I will tell them, don't worry, we will make our way out of this someday. We just need to be patient. I got to the conclusion that only having a business, I will be able to succeed. And I started looking what type of business I could have that will help me to succeed. So I started by what is not available in Utah. And I thought, hmm, there is no a Hispanic newspaper here. So probably that's what I'm gonna do. So I just started the newspaper. And the first newspaper <laughs> took us a month to do it. So you can imagine how fresh the news were. Since the beginning, my dream was integration. So I decided, okay, we will have bilingual editorials. And so I thought, how can I make people start placing advertising? And I said, I need to get a couple of companies that are powerful here. So I went to visit with them and I told them, I will donate the full page in my newspaper. You don't have to pay me anything. But if you wanna outreach the Hispanic community, I will give you the ad for free, but you gave me the ad totally ready. And for them, what's a good deal? So they say, okay, let's do it. My next challenge came when I didn't have cash flow. So I started thinking, okay, I will have to close the newspaper. And at that point, I visited with late Senator Pete Suazo. And I told him, I have to close the newspaper. And he told me, no, you cannot do that, Gladys. That's the voice of the community. So he told me, how much money do you need? And I said, $10,000 cash flow. So he told me, have you been rejected by any bank? And I said, yes. Do you have a letter? Yes, I do. 
and he said, well, that's all we need. There is an organization called Utah Microenterprise Loan. So we can apply with the letter of denial, you do a business plan, and I'll help you to present to the committee. I got the loan, and the day that I got the loan, I took a photocopy of the check, and then at night, I wrote an outline of my vision of what will be a business center resource for minorities, where people will be able to get education, how to write a business plan, how to apply for loans, and at the same time, I will team up with banks to have source of capital available for them. In 2002, when Pizzo died, I decided that I wanted to honor his legacy, and I asked an authorization to his family to use his name and to create the Suazo Center nonprofit. And we have served between seven and 8,000 companies since the inception of the center. One of those companies is actually a change of nine supermarkets. It is owned by a Mexican woman, and we helped her with the first little store, and later on, when she wanted to open the first big supermarket in El Latino Mall, a team of eight people were helping her to create all the business plan, and she got a, a loan for 700,000. Today, she gives employment to over 500 people. For me, the American dream is not about what the government does for us or who is the president. For me, it is about contributing our talents to worthy causes. It's about alleviating the suffering of those in need. It's about being a valuable part of the country that is now at home. It's learning the language and not having fear of expressing ourselves even if we have a strong accent. I consider myself that I have fully lived the American dream. I continue living the American dream. And you've been listening to Gladys Gonzalez, founder of the Suazo Center, which helps Hispanic entrepreneurs create their own American dream. And you can learn more about their work and support them at suazocenter.org. That's S-U-A-Z-O center.org. Gladys's story, so many immigrant stories. I know my grandfather's story, a pizzeria in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and my grandfather on the other side, Lebanese, an embroidery factory. Businesses help fuel the American dream for both of them. And both, by the way, struggled as immigrants. And it is no easy thing to move from another country to a new country, learn the language, oftentimes lose your credentials. Gladys was, a, was an executive at a bank 
and came to the country, and that expertise and experience just wasn't honored. And so she was cleaning floors, but with patience and with diligence, ended up living her own version of the American dream. A great immigrant story, Gladys Gonzalez's story, and a great American dreamer's story here on Our American Stories. And send your American dreamer stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We know they're out there by the millions. Your American dreamer stories, your family story, your immigrant story, here to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the tale of Casey Jones, the famous railroad engineer who died with one hand on the whistle and the other on the brake. Here to separate fact from legend is Daniel French. Come all you round us if you want to hear A story about a brave engineer Casey Jones was the rounder's name On a six-eight wheeler boys The American Storybook is filled with myths and legends Titans of lore, names like John Henry, Paul Bunyan, Johnny Appleseed, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, Billy the Kid, Buffalo Bill, we could go on Casey Jones, mounted to the cabin What we think we know of the real people behind the legends usually couldn't be any further from the truth. So while we learn that Johnny Appleseed, for example, was no myth, he was a legend. He was a real guy. He was a nurseryman and a forward thinker in American agronomy. But he probably didn't wear a pot on his head. And he didn't run around the countryside with a sack full of apple seeds scattering them about. We have Walt Disney to thank for that. We can also point to Disney for coloring outside the lines and muddying our perception of another very real man in an American legend, Casey Jones. I grew up outside of Atlanta, and on a rise behind my boyhood home were train tracks, maybe a half a mile away. My brothers and I would spend hours and hours walking those tracks, counting train cars, throwing rocks at signs, or each other, and hopping on the back of a caboose to take it to the next town, six or seven miles down the track, only to take another train back home before it got too dark. I distinctly remember the day when we saw no more cabooses. I'm not sure what they were on those trains for anyway, since there was never anyone in them. My younger brother knew every single one of the cars and all of the lines. That stuff didn't interest me as much. I just wondered where the trains and the people on them would end up. Where'd they been? Who were the men driving those trains? The romance of the American Railroad has largely passed and it remains now only with enthusiasts. When I got older and graduated from listening to all pop music and started exploring more and different styles of songs, I got this CD. 
It's one that I think nearly every American kid encountered at some point, certainly every college kid. The Grateful Dead, Skeletons from the Closet. Every student had it. That and Steve Miller Band's greatest hits. On Skeletons was a song. This one, Casey Jones. Driving that train, how cocaine. Casey Jones, he's better. Watch your speed. Hold on, Jerry. More on the song later. Casey Jones, the legendary railroad man, was a very real train engineer. And he did die behind the controls of a behemoth of an engine, the Illinois Central Number no. 382. His fireman, Sim Webb, who passed in song as the loyal sidekick who, at the behest of the engineer, jumped from the train in order to live, while Casey Jones crashed headlong into legend. Webb died nearly 60 years later, succumbing to pneumonia, stemming from complications from mouth cancer, but not before he gave us what should be, at least, the definitive eyewitness report of what happened to Casey Jones. That is coming up. This is George Johnson. Casey Jones said before he died. A gandy dancer or old railroad hand. Casey Jones was often sung by working men and chain gangs throughout the South. Southern Pacific in the sand John Luther Casey Jones was a lifelong railroader who started with the Mobile and Ohio Railroad at 15. The Casey came from a play on the town where he grew up, Case, Kentucky. Case didn't quite work for the railroad men in Memphis, so Luther became Casey. He was quickly promoted to brakeman on the line from Columbus, Kentucky to Jackson, Tennessee, where he ultimately settled. Along the way, he made fireman, then was promoted to engineer. In the late 19th century, this was a big deal being a train engineer. Railroad engineers had the, they were like fighter pilots. They were type A personalities. The kids loved them. They were like their heroes. All the kids had That's Jack Gurner, a retired photojournalist who is something of a repository of Casey Jones lore and history at the Water Valley Casey Jones Railroad Museum in Water Valley, Mississippi. Water Valley is where Casey Jones, after switching from the M&O to the Illinois Central, was stationed for a while. Cars were still a long way from being a regular sight on roads in this country, which were still unpaved, and planes were further along still. Driving a train was high-tech, and it carried serious prestige in turn-of-the-century America. Casey Jones struck a larger-than-life figure, in great part to his massive 6-foot, 4-inch frame. A big man on a big train, he would have been the epitome of a child's dream in the cabin and behind the throttle of a train engine. And Casey Jones was good at being an engineer, he drove his trains well and fast. But Casey was a bit of a speed freak. To go along with all the commendations he accrued in his career, he once saved the life of a young girl who was scared stiff on the rails ahead of one of his engines. He also received numerous infractions on his record, nine in total, including having spent over 100 days suspended from duty. As egregious as that sounds, it was not uncommon in Jones's day. Engineers knew they needed to keep on time and on schedule, and on Jones's run at the time of his death on April 30th, 1900, that wasn't easy. The Illinois Central, south of Memphis, Tennessee, as it shoots down into Mississippi, was something of a bottleneck as track quality was often inconsistent, necessitating slower speeds. So, Casey Jones was real. 
He did drive fast. He did have a fireman named Sim Webb who survived the crash after jumping from the cabin at Jones' instruction. He did die on the 30th of April, 1900, in a collision with another train in Vaughan, Mississippi. It was raining, and Jones was going too fast, at least too fast to slow down enough to avoid crashing into the caboose of a freight train that was stuck on the mainline track. But was he completely at fault? And we'll get the answer to that question and so much more. The story of Casey Jones, told by Daniel French. We'll continue with the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the tale of Casey Jones, the famous railroad engineer who died with one hand on the whistle and the other on the brake. Here to separate fact from legend is Daniel French. Casey Jones wasn't supposed to be driving the Illinois Central Railroad's 382 from Memphis to Canton, Mississippi that night. He and Webb had just finished their own regular shift. They were attached to the 384, another passenger train, and the two of them only had four months' experience on this run. But on April 29th, the engineer on schedule was sick, and Jones and Webb were asked to take another run, and they obliged. The 382 was behind schedule that night. It left Memphis, Tennessee some 95 minutes late, and the passengers and the all-important mail were waiting to head south. This was really no big deal. Engineers were expected to make the trip in whatever time was allotted. They didn't have to make up time, Jack Gurner says. There was no push from the railroad company. His job was to get the train from Memphis to Canton in the same amount of time it always took. It didn't matter if he was going to be an hour and 35 minutes late getting there. That was acceptable because he was leaving an hour and 35 minutes late. This wasn't interesting to Casey Jones. Drizzling rain around the curve come a passenger train. Steaming south through North Mississippi at high speed, lighter rails saw more cautious engineers take it easy past towns like Olive Branch and Senatobia. But Jones kept his hand on the throttle with heavy pressure. They had already made up time before they stopped for water at Sardis. By the time they got to Grenada, they had already made up 55 minutes of their 95-minute delay. After Goodman, with Vaughn next on the schedule, they were rolling right along. So everything that morning pointed to Casey Jones and Sim Webb doing what they were charged to do, to get the mail and to get the passengers to Canton on time. Casey Jones was doing even better than that and might just have made up the original time lost were it not for two freight trains on the passing track at Vaughan. Now, the passing track, also known as a sawby, is a small run of track that turns off the main line, allowing the trains with higher priority 
a passenger train, for instance, to continue on the route while the other trains had pulled over. Except at Vaughan, there were two freight trains, the number 72 and the 83. No big deal. House tracks were available to the west of the main line. According to The Real Story, Casey Jones and the wreck at Vaughan found at the Water Valley Casey Jones Railroad Museum. But the house tracks on the west of the main line were occupied by a northbound passenger train from Canton, Casey's counterpart in the other direction. And the two freight trains were to be tightly packed onto the eastbound side of the depot, which wouldn't have been a real problem except that an air hose on the 72 broke. It couldn't fully pull into the sawby, which meant that the last several cars of the 83 were faithfully still on the main line. An engineer as experienced as Casey Jones would have anticipated a clear track. If there were a problem, it would be expected that a flagman would walk there well ahead of the danger, placing the problem, it would be expected that a flagman would walk well ahead of the danger, placing fuses at intervals and signaling with a lantern. The flagman that night was John M. Newberry. An internal investigation records that Newberry did his duty, but Jack Gurner of the Water Valley Casey Jones Railroad Museum in Mississippi doubts the official line. This guy is supposed to walk north about a mile. He's supposed to go way up north with this lantern. And when Casey sees Casey coming, he's supposed to start doing this with the lantern which is a signal that it's an emergency stop. You have got to stop. So what we believe happened, this guy was not popular. He was very lazy. He even walked up past the curve where they couldn't see him, which was probably a quarter of a mile or so, and stopped. He didn't want to go any further because it was a long walk. Even more telling than Mr. Gurner's take is this one, from the only other person who might know the truth, Sim Webb. If a train is blocking the main line, Railroad rules require that a flagman must go out 10 telegraph poles distance and place two warning torpedoes two rail lengths apart, then a stop torpedo. If a train approaches, he must also light a red fusee. This flagman must remain un out until called in. If we had been properly warned, Casey Jones might have been alive today. Casey Jones, Sim Webb, and the passengers aboard the Illinois Central No. 382 were only 12 miles from Canton before the accident. Jones, experienced and respected as a railroad engineer, would likely, even at high speed, have had enough time to stop had he had the requisite one-mile warning. But as it happened, the 382 sharply reduced its speed, but not before hitting the train stranded along the main line. Jump, Sim, jump! Here are Casey Jones' last moments, as Sim Webb tells it in his 1952 recording, the story of engineer Casey Jones' last trip. As we entered the curve, I put in a fire and climbed up and looked out of the cab window on my side so that when we swung to the left, I could look ahead with a clear view of the siding and station. As we came out of the curve, there right ahead of us were the red rear markers of a train. Showing red meant that it was on the main line. At once I yelled to Casey, Oh my Lord, here's something on the main line. He jumped to his feet, looked diagonally across the top of the boiler, at the same time setting the air brakes 
in an emergency stop. He had to reach up to do it, as the valve was located high on these engines. Jump, Sim, jump, he shouted. I jumped across the deck, grabbed the handrail, slid down as far as I could go, then turned loose. Casey never had a chance. The engineer's seat on one side and the long boiler which divided us, the cab on the other side, made escape practically impossible. Hitting the ground knocked me unconscious. I woke up about 30 minutes later to hear voices say, here he is. When I was able to talk, I asked about the engineer and told me he was here. Jones set the brake and put his head out the window. Webb climbed down as far as he could before letting loose. He hit the side of the tracks and was knocked unconscious. Jones, as we all know, stayed put. His engine hit the caboose, a car of hay, a car of corn, and steamed halfway through a car of lumber attached to that stranded rig. There are no pictures of the immediate aftermath. There was no National Transportation Safety Board to investigate. All we have is the Illinois Central Railroad's internal investigation. What we know from a few of the people who saw Jones' body was that his death was far more gruesome than any of the many songs about him record. He wasn't going to jump off a train, but Casey was going to stay with it, but if he had ducked down, he probably would have lived, but instead he was standing looking out the side window and a piece of wood or a bolt hit him in the neck, punctured his uh, neck. That's what he died from. He picked him up out of the wreck and took him down to depot at Vaughn, and he supposedly died of a baggage car at Vaughn. Was Casey Jones a hero? His actions that morning were certainly heroic. He was able to reduce speed from some 90 miles an hour to down to 30 or 35 miles an hour in less than a quarter of a mile. Sim Webb was concussed. A number of passengers suffered lacerations, concussions of their own, certainly scared. But Casey Jones was the lone fatality. A number of passengers received modest settlements from the railroad. Jones' widow, Janie, for her grief, received $3,000 in insurance money. She never married again. So was Casey Jones a hero? What Casey Jones was, was an American original. And if he was one... He was a hero in a tragedy of his own creation. And great job on that, and that is Daniel French. He was doing the storytelling, and what a story it is. Indeed, it was of his own making, uh, but it didn't make him any less of a hero. Very often we get ourselves into ditches. What we do inside that ditch, well, that's another thing. Casey Jones's story, the myth, the reality, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And next, we bring you the story of Martin Licious and his company, Tempest Tours, an unconventional Texas-based tour company. Storm chasers, those wild individuals who ride around in search of the weather most people try to avoid. What kind of person does it take to do this? Well, let's find out with Martin Licious. I first became interested in uh, severe weather growing up in North Texas where we have big storms on a regular basis when I was a kid. Probably about four or five years old, um, we would have storms that come through that uh, the lightning would hit so close to our house that our whole house would shake. Also, right down the street from our house was a TV station called WBAP-TV. Harold Taft was the meteorologist on staff, and uh, Harold is actually credited with uh, creating the American weathercast, TV weathercast. Before him, they would simply read the text. They would read the the forecast off a piece of paper, and then he, uh, being a a full-blown meteorologist, decided to use maps to describe to the viewers what was happening. Uh, Believe me, we're going to. um, The computer will paint this on. Kind of fun to watch it, so let's just do that for a second. See? All the color comes on, all the symbols. All right. Still getting a little light uh, freezing drizzle up here in uh, Gage, Oklahoma. And so I'd watch him a lot, and uh, they had this old-fashioned black and white radar. And he'd show that quite a bit as well. And uh, I think that was kind of when I really became interested in weather. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, I asked my mom if I could build a weather station on top of the uh, of our house. She said, sure, just be careful. And I uh, started plotting storms as they came through uh, on a map. And I entered a science fair and uh, won the competition. I built a 3D model of a supercell thunderstorm. And the winner is... Eventually I got a car and uh, decided that I'd go out and film storms and then about the same time that I did that uh, I heard that there was there were these guys called storm chasers and I met some of them and then from there that point on I, I did it quite a bit. Martin eventually founded Tempest Tours, a company that lets you book storm chasing expeditions like cruises. That came about in we started it in 2000. I'd say around 1999, I decided I was going to do it um, because I didn't think that, I didn't say to myself, let's start a storm chasing tour company. I just uh, was receiving a lot of requests from regular normal people uh, to go storm chasing with me and they were usually not able to go because of work. So I thought, what if we created tours and then we put out the schedule year in advance people could get off work and actually go and that's when uh, Tempest Tours was born uh, back around 2000 you know storm chasing is kind of like fishing Um, you know there's a good time of year to go fishing right Um, but you go out and you go out several days fishing and some days are good and some days are not good so it's a lot like that Um, on a tour you know, they're typically run four to 11 days in length. And of course, the longer the tour, the greater chance of seeing good storms, just like if you went on an 11-day fishing trip versus a four-day fishing trip. Um, basically, they get up in the morning, we tell the guests when to meet us. Uh, we stay at motels, of course, 
and we'll meet in um, the lobby or, or somewhere and we'll do a little we weather briefing and uh, tell them what we we show the maps and so forth and we tell them why we're going there what we can expect that day then we all load up head to that target uh, wait for storms to develop and then uh, we we track the one that we feel has the greatest potential of producing a tornado or just being a really good supercell and you know sometimes you'll have three or four storms form in your target area and you have to be very careful to put pick this the right one and so we kind of sometimes hold back a little bit and wait until the best one what we think will be the best one to form and we've been very successful at that and then we track it and uh, if it's not moving too fast we're able to stop several times and take pictures of it including tornadoes and lightning and so forth which you can see uh, at our website you know people a common question that people ask is how close do we get and I say close enough to take great pictures but far enough to be safe so the best way to see how close we get is to go to our website or go to our Facebook page and just see the pictures that we've taken and some of our guests have taken and you can get a good idea of how close we get. Now while they're in the van, along the way there are uh, there's a screen in the van and so they're watching what the tour director is doing and they're seeing, you know, the models develop. That's Kim George, Tempest Tours customer relations manager. So he will be explaining those along the way, saying this is what the storm is doing, this is where we need to be. And so he will constantly keep them updated as they are going towards the target. And so they will wait, but when they actually get to visually see the storm, you know, coming up in the foreground, everybody gets very excited. So we get um, closer to the storm, we track it. Sometimes you have to wait a little while, but most of the time you're going straight towards the storm. Most storms develop in the afternoon. And um, once you are on the storm, then uh, depending on how the storm is moving, you position and you reposition and you reposition again because storms don't stand still most of the time. <laughs> when we're chasing a storm, we follow it till its end or till you lose the light. And sometimes that'll happen. And if you can't chase it when it's dark, sometimes they do. It depends on the storm. If it's developing tornadoes, sometimes we have, we did this past year, uh, chase a storm even after dark and they actually saw some nighttime tornadoes which was um, very good for the group. They thought that was amazing and the only reason you can see them is because the lightning when it strikes you can actually see the tornadoes below the storm. So that's basically a typical day and then we uh, get lodging nearby and they stay somewhere for the night and then they also are developing a plan to you know begin that all over again the next day. We are not a luxury tour company. <laughs> uh, we have to tell them that, honestly, you know, when you're out chasing, and anybody who does that would know, uh, you'll be in Podunkies, America, somewhere. And there's not a lot of options when it comes to places to stay. And sometimes there's not a lot of options for places to eat. And so you do the best you can with the environment that you're in. And we are very good about finding places that you can stay. But every once in a while, you know, that Motel 6, it may be the only place that you can stay for the night. So you do. Um, because the important thing is not the luxury of what we do. It's the chasing itself. And, and our guests do realize that, that you can't always be in, you know, a 
really swanky hotel, but that's not why you go and chase with this. You just need a bed, you need a place to get some rest, and then you can start the next day fresh. On a down day, uh, we will uh, head towards the next day's target. So a down day may be followed by a severe weather potential day. So we'll head towards that target and on the way stop at places that are interesting. Things that, you know, I've seen since I've been with the company that I never knew existed. There is a place in Kansas that's called uh, Monument Rock, and it's just this sandstone formation in the middle of nowhere. And you go on it, and it's just crazy. Uh, it could be the Badlands in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Palo Duro Canyon in the Texas Panhandle, or you might stop at a weather service office and take a tour. So we're always doing something interesting uh, every single day. We know this is our guest uh, vacation time. They want to see something interesting. We try to make it special when we're not on a storm. I mean, they're all coming for the storms. I mean, they don't really care about the other ones if they have a storm to follow. <laughs> so, but yeah, we try to make the times that we're not, you know, in a hard chase for the storm, we try to make those um, times as memorable as we can. And you were listening to Martin Licious and Kim George, and Martin is the founder of Tempest Tours, and Kim works there in the customer relations department. And if you want to see a storm, well, then Tempest Tours is the place to go. And TempestTours.com is the website address, TempestTours.com. And go on there and take a look at the gallery section and see what customers have seen. And so if you want to get up and close to a tornado, and I've always wanted to see one, we broadcast south of Memphis here in Oxford, Mississippi. Been here about a dozen years, probably about 15 uh, tornado warnings and storm shelter trips. But I'm always popping my head out to see one, and it just doesn't happen. One came within about uh, five miles of our town, cut across Highway 6, and then ultimately made its way up to Birmingham and up to Tuscaloosa, one of the big killers of all time, one of the worst tornadoes of all time in American history. So again, Martin Licious with Tempest Tours, his story, and so many Americans who are just fascinated by, well, just turbulence and tough weather. Martin's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. 
man known as Mean Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman, Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first down, the game's over. They made it. They made the first down. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, that he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona and life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory. That is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. 
In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the co-commercial, I'd probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it I think you fumbled. <laughs> and the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, I... giving the line, Joe. <laughs> they were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna, the guy was going to blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the, the legend, of course, that he drank 18 16-ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. <laughs> Needless to say, when I started to shoot, the first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. The commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? It's okay. You can have it. Okay. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in a, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for the kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on you. Yeah? We 
we'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? (laughs) Um, I guess just because we know you as Grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and coming up to you. So it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. (laughs) The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. A few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.